pray together. God, we now lean on you as the one who can restore broken things. And there are people in this room, I know, that they're in some kind of crisis relationally. It may be right at the center of their marriage. And we're looking to you now, God, that you would be the one who enables us to live a life that is higher than the expectations of the culture around us, a kind of standard of love that is higher. And God, you're also the one who can be our teacher in this way. So would you open up our hearts today? I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we're dismissed the rest of our children to their learning center. So children ages preschool all the way through fifth grade. So you came in this morning, you saw the topic for the day was marriage, you know it's Super Bowl Sunday, and you said, how is AC3 going to tie those two things together? (laughs) Mission accomplished. You're impressed. So I want you to think about the, uh, I decided that for you. Um, So I want you to think about the Marshalls for a second, all right? Here's a couple, they clearly have it all. Good looking couple, making millions of dollars. You know, someone at Brandon Marshall's talent level, he's making probably $10 million a year or more. Uh, he's got a fulfilling career, so does she. They've got this beautiful home. They've got admiration of millions of people, fame. But the marriage is miserable, so they are miserable. Now, what does that tell you? That tells me that so much of the amount of happiness in your life is hanging on the razor's edge of one relationship. Like, you've got a lot of relationships in your life. Look at your Facebook feed. You've got hundreds of friends, lots of relationships. But the overwhelming amount of your well-being in this life is going to be determined by the health of just one of those relationships. I want you to think about like, like this. Have you ever played the game, Would You Rather? Hey, who's played the game, Would You Rather? Do you know what I'm talking about? Your kids are playing this game if you don't know what I'm talking about. And... Um, in my house, uh, when the boys would play the Would You Rather game, um, it could uh, descend in uh, quality quite quickly. But, you know, the, the Would You Rather is basically like a one-sentence poll question. You ask a person, and then it's basically who can get the, the grossest starting now. So, so it's, you know, fairly innocuous. Would you rather have a zombie apocalypse or World War III? And then you pick, right? Uh, would you rather talk like Yoda or breathe like Darth Vader? That question came out of my Durango at one point. Uh, would you rather be half your height or double your weight? You know, you get the idea. So you choose between two terrible options. It's a lot of fun. So did you know that God actually asks you to play the would you rather game when it comes to talking about the importance of cultivating a great marriage? And the invitation is contained in a proverb. Solomon will throw this out, Proverbs fifteen seventeen: A bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than steak with someone you hate. You see, the, would, would you see the, the choice, right, of the would you rather game played out there. Would you rather struggle financially for the rest of your life, but you'll be in a great marriage? Or would you rather have wealth, but be in a torturous marriage for the rest of your life? And God has given you the right answer to the question. Pick the great marriage. Pick the great marriage. So many other things in life, so many other goals, aspirations that you're reaching for, they will pale in comparison to the importance of this one relationship working right. But what's the key? Brandon Marshall tells you, he gave us the big picture today, I thought it was a beautiful testimony of talking about God's power uh, to change 
human hearts and lives. I mean, uh, a power to humble him, a power to sustain him, uh, work through him getting healthy in some different ways, power to have his wife, uh, to be patient, to continue to believe, to trust in God's process. And then, and then God's wisdom, God's power, and then God's wisdom. I prayed about this earlier. God's wisdom to set a new intellectual foundation, a set of, a set of uh, lifestyle keys that would literally tra- transform this relationship. So what is that wise foundation? Let's talk about that with the rest of our time, shall we? Because there's a main passage that summarizes it, and it boils down to a couple of words. Here it is from Ephesians 5, verses 20, verse 21 through 33. Paul says, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You wives will submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. And you husbands must love your wives with the same love Christ showed the church. So I say again, skipping ahead to verse 33, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now let's clear something up right away. That word submission. So you're tweaked by it. I know you are because we're living in a very independent age, but notice that submission is the overarching value and command for the Christian household. It applies to everyone. Ephesians 5.22, so you, that is all of you, you is plural in the Greek, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you're tweaked by submission, you're just tweaked finally by a Christ-like lifestyle. Because Christians embrace submission as an expression of deference to others seeking their benefit and help to be servanthood, to, to be servants, and, because we're all called to submit. But don't get caught there. See, if you're caught there, you're going to miss the important summary that Paul makes of his own uh, summary of God's marriage wisdom in verse 33. The instruction boils down to two words. Husbands must love their wives. Wives must respect their husbands. Love, respect. And that is a key Owner's manual insight right there, AC3. Now, you could try to summarize that in a bunch of different ways. If you had a chip on your shoulder, you could take that whole narrative about husbands and wives and you could summarize it as a return to patriarchy. You could summarize it as uh, establishing male rulership. Or, honestly, if you really read the words, you could, you could summarize it in the opposite way. This is clearly Paul uh, establishing male subservience. They're supposed to love uh, their wives as Christ loved the church, giving his life, lay, becoming a doormat? Whew. You could summarize this teaching a bunch of different ways, but then you would be missing how Paul chose to summarize his own teaching in verse 33. When, when he summarizes it, he boils it down to two words. Two words. Uh, now, there's a beautiful insight there if we're willing to see it in how God made men and women, and what they need. This is, by the way, hinted at at a research team study where basically they played the would-you-rather game with thousands and thousands of men and women by asking them one simple poll question. They asked them to imagine themselves in deep crisis. And they said, imagine a moment of terrible conflict or chaos. The bottom has fallen out of your life. Now imagine you were forced to make a decision. And men and women were both asked this question. Would you rather feel totally alone and unloved in the world, or would you rather feel totally inadequate and disrespected by everyone? Now, obviously, it's a lousy choice, but the point is they're asked to make the choice. You have to choose. Gun to your head. You have to choose. What do you choose? Well, at a rate of 74%, the men would rather feel alone and unloved 
than disrespected and inadequate. And conversely, in the same poll, the women at a rate of over 60% would rather feel inadequate and disrespected than alone and unloved. And isn't this just an interesting little insight into the way that men and women tick? And then that God's commandments, his sort of overarching marriage wisdom, plays right into what we need most. Now, let's be fair about this. Do men need love? Well, of course, men need to be loved, just like everybody needs to be loved. Do women need to be respected? Just ask Aretha Franklin. Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. You've got to have it, right? Women have to be respected. But this is a fact. This is a fact. As I discern it from the counselor's office. In a crisis, when the chips are down, when we're circling the wagons, when we're shutting off the extremities to protect the vital organs, what a man wants to protect is his ego. And what a woman wants to protect is her security. I think you can take that to the bank. So God commands something. He puts something in the operator manual for marriages in Christ that feeds our most basic need, that we would be the supplier of it in a submissive and servant-oriented way. Now, you might not be a Christian here today, so you're investigating this thing, and you're kind of rolling your eyes maybe a little bit, like this is a return to the Stone Age, back to the patriarchy, whatever. You can have your opinion of that, that's fine. But listen, my challenge to you is this. You could bring God's wisdom home with you today and just start applying it, and things will begin to sing in your marriage because it simply conforms to how God made you. So God looks at men in this wisdom, and he basically commands them. He has to command them. He says, love your wife. Now, why must he command them? I mean, the guy is perfectly capable of falling head over heels in love with his wife. During courtship, he just goes gaga over her. He's clearly capable of just cherishing her and buying her amazing stuff. Why must he be commanded, love your wife? Because, AC3, the language of cherishing is not native to him. Can he speak this language? He absolutely can. He speaks it fluently in courtship. And then after a few years of marriage, he settles back in to his native tongue. So then God must conversely look at a woman and he must command them, respect your husband, honor him. Now why would he have to do that when women are clearly capable of thinking the world of their men? They think about all his potential and his gifts and they see the world in him. Why must he command this? Because, AC3, the language of respect is not their native language. Can they speak it? Yes, they do. And they will speak it fluently in courtship, honoring and upholding their man and thinking the world of him. And then, after a few years in marriage, they settle back to their own native tongue. And that's why it has to be commanded. Now, here's the crazy cycle. Are you ready? Here's the crazy cycle. The crazy cycle is when a man refuses to love his wife because he thinks he gets no respect. And a woman refuses to respect her husband because she thinks she gets no love. And you want to see a snake eat its own tail. You watch a couple enter into the crazy cycle. And it's just a deep dysfunction around two things. Respect and love. So I just want to go over those two things. That's all we're going to do today. Let's go over the two sets of challenges that are contained in Paul's summary of God's marriage wisdom. And imagine if you started obeying God today in this way, and you took it that seriously. So first, let's talk about men needing respect. Despite movies like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and Predator, uh, 
we live in an increasingly pink world. That's my assessment. We live in an increasingly pink world. I'm, I'm talking uh, metaphorically, of course. However, if you look at the NFL, right, the last bastion of testosterone-fueled mochismo, and for one month, all the players wear pink, right? I think we live in an increasingly pinkified culture, which means more and more of a compassion-driven culture, a classically feminine virtue. It expresses part of the image of God. It's a beautiful thing. God has built his image in male and female, the Bible says. But so despite the fact this is good, I mean, love and compassion are awesome, but we've had a curious development as a result of this increasing emphasis. See, we've been properly trained to believe that therefore love, because it's so important, compassion, so important, must be unconditional. But curiously, we no longer say the same thing about respect. We are more and more a compassion-driven culture, less and less a justice-driven culture. So now we will say, love must be unconditional, respect must be earned. That's the way we think. So I'll play this biblical wisdom out. And sometimes, this is essentially, after I teach on this, I'll talk privately with wives and the, what's going on in their hearts as they interact with this. And in not so many words, this is what I hear. Well, I don't feel any respect for him. He hasn't earned it. He doesn't deserve it. Uh, I think it would be hypocritical of me to show it. I mean, he's not superior to me. I'm not inferior to him. I'm not going to feed his ego and give him license to do what he wants to do. I won't subject myself to emotional abuse, make myself a doormat, feed his male dominance, and return to the patriarchy. Other than that, I'm totally open to what you have to say, Rick. I kind of get that whole thing. And what it expresses is this idea, right, that respect got to be earned. People, we have got to get past that. You've got to get past the idea that love must be unconditional, but respect should be earned. They both should be unconditional because God commands them unconditionally. Now, an important caveat, because I know you're probably grinding away on this already. Look, if a man is mired in apathy, irresponsible, addicted, incarcerated, abusive, you do not respect those things. Of course not. Never. But you respect the man. It's unconditional. You respect the man. In other words, there's nothing he can do that gives you the right to disrespect him. And in just a few minutes, we'll talk about what disrespect looks like. Yeah, there are things that he might do that you would never justify, you would never condone. There may be things that he would do that even require you to distance yourself from unhealthy or unsafe behaviors, but you never have a right to show disrespect. You just don't. It's unconditional. We talk about this when it comes to the presidency, don't we? We say respect the office. For the sitting president and all prior presidents, almost half the population don't like the guy. They didn't vote for him, and they don't respect half the stuff he does or he stands for, but you respect the man. You respect the office. And we had an example of that, right? Someone stands up in the middle of a congressional meeting where the president is addressing the house, and someone says, you lie! And later he admitted that was the wrong thing to do. Why? You respect the man. Respect the office. That was disrespectful. There are ways to express issues with policy or whatever, and he did not follow a respectful course. So the same is on the other side of love. Like women, a woman can be unfaithful, uninterested, uninvolved, uninspiring. You don't love those things. They're, they're not lovable things, but none of that gives you the right husband to not love her. 
Now, might there need to be changes? Yes, boundaries set up, whatever. All sorts of actions might be required because of irresponsible or unlovable behavior. But love, the activity of love, is unconditional. You love her when she is unlovable. And you respect the man when he is not respectable. When you do, when you do these things, here's my prediction. Be surprised by things that will flower in him or her. Now, a lot of women don't get it. And here's why I think they don't get it. Because they think that they already feel tons of respect for their man. They look at him in courtship and they saw someone who inspired them, who broke down their defenses, someone who they saw so much potential in. And so most times, because respect is not your native tongue, wife, I think sometimes you don't even realize when you're not giving it. But what you are observing is something else that has you disturbed. You're observing a man who's growing more and more disengaged, grumpier, more listless, and lashing out at you. And you wonder why. And it might be unintentional disrespect that's happening. And so let me be very practical now. Ways that we show respect. Number one, respect is judgment. Now let's be honest, men are like super sensitive about this. But a man deeply needs the woman in his life to respect his knowledge, respect his opinions, and respect his decisions. Now immediately, let me clarify what this does not mean. What this does not mean, I don't talk to a single Christian man these days. I mean, I could go probably into some very deeply conservative uh, branch of Christendom and probably find some man who expects that every decision he makes should be the rule of the house. I don't hear that anymore. I, I meet men who want to collaborate with their woman. They want teamwork, they want joint decisions, they want mutual submission, all right? They want all this stuff, and, and uh, a man will often want to defer to his woman in knowledge and opinions and decisions. But what, here's what irks a guy. What irks him is when he feels that his decisions and his opinions and his knowledge are actively respected. They're actively valued in every area of his life, except at home. And then he comes home, and I ask him, how do you feel at home? He says, I feel like one of the kids. Wow. Sometimes I'm in a counseling situation, and I'll turn to the wife, and I'll say, is that right? Is he, is he treated like one of the kids when he comes home? And I've heard a couple bold wives say to me, well, he acts like a kid. Now, you see where we're getting into trouble? I mean, listen, wife, if you say that, you've just given him permission to treat you unlovingly if you do unloving things. Is that the world you want to live in? That's not the world you want to live in, is it? I hope not. See, that's the crazy cycle, right? That's the crazy cycle. So respect his judgment. Secondly, respect his abilities. Some of you are raising boys right now. We raised two of our own, and you kind of see naked masculinity in a kid, right? You can try to strip that away from him, try to take all the guns out of his life, but he'll make them out of bananas and feathers, right? And if you've raised a kid, you know what I'm talking about. You see in men a wild heart. The wild heart of an adventurer. He wants to explore and he wants to conquer. They want, they need to figure things out on their own. If they can, they want to master something. Even if it's just a little white ball and smash it down the long, long patch of grass. So that's what they want to do. So for some reason, spending six hours figuring out how to assemble the surround sound without the instructions is fun for him. For reasons unknown to science, men like to figure out how to get there using the force and not asking any human 
the directions. This is weird. It's crazy. It's irrational behavior. But women, they just want to help. And when they offer it helpfully, how does he take it? As disrespect. This dude is so oversensitive. Here's what he's thinking. Can I just walk you into his brain for a second? Here's what he's thinking. He's thinking, if she doesn't trust me enough to figure out a dumb thing like a broken sink, she must think I'm a total idiot. That's what he's thinking. If she doesn't trust me enough with this little thing, I mean, what, she must think I'm a complete moron, that I can't get it done. And wife, you might say in your honest heart, well, the truth is he'd never fix a broken sink before, so I don't trust him that he'll do it right. And this is where you have to ask yourself whether you are ready to give trust as a gift. You just trust. It's a gift. What if I get stepped on? Deal, you'll deal with it. You'll deal with it. You offer trust as a gift. And then finally, respecting communication. You know, women don't have the market cornered on disrespectful communication, let me tell you. But it remains a fact that husbands, whom God has wired for success and achievement, are especially sensitive to disrespectful communication. So let me just give, tip you off as to what might be disrespectful but you're not actually, or haven't seen it as such. It's coming across as disrespectful, and you just think you're talking, right? So hypercriticism, like criticizing everything that happens, that's disrespectful. Berating, that's disrespectful. Intimidating or sarcastic responses, that's disrespectful. Even body language. Body language can be disrespectful. Eye-rolling and that whole deal. These are disrespectful communication responses. Now, it's true that some men will hear disrespect and none is intended at all. We'll talk about that later when we talk about husbands loving wives. But sisters, let's just evaluate. If according to God's design instructions, whether you're ready to fulfill the man's need in your life that only you can fill. All right, now let's talk about women needing love. Now, you take this performance-oriented man we're talking about, you put him in courtship, right? And he pours on the charm. Job one, win the woman. So we're going to conquer that. We're going to climb that mountain. All right. So he powers up the attraction motors and he has them running at full speed. He finds heretofore unknown resources of creativity and finds the courage to make himself a fool for love. He sings underneath her bedroom window a romantic tune off key in front of her friends. Looks like an idiot for love. Okay. He's capable of all of this. The deal then finally gets done. He wears her down. Right? Like water on a stone. <laughs> if I, you know what? I think I can probably trust this guy. I think he, he, he wore down my defenses. I'm, I'm going to receive his proposal. A ring gets exchanged. There's a wedding. It is finished. Job complete. Right? And now it's done. Right? In your mind, men, divorce statistics to the contrary, there is nothing so secure as your marriage. It is a closed book. It is sealed up safe and sound. And so feeling this way as you do, you are perplexed continually in your marriage by the responses of your woman. Things that go like this. She asks repeatedly, do you love me? When you have given her no reason to make her feel like you've changed your mind on the subject, right? Like you, you haven't changed your mind? Or she says, do you love someone? You, you would have loved someone else more than me. And these sorts of responses. And you've given her no indication to believe that you're un, unhappy in this way or that. Or, or, or you'll also observe why she takes your need for space sometimes, or like as we call it, cave time, 
as a desire to get away from her, like it's about her. And you go, it's not about you. Or you're perplexed why she wants to talk, talk, talk about your relationship, and often at the least opportune times. You're perplexed why she seems to be able to turn critical or pushy for no reason that you can figure out, or why she gets crabby or teary and seems to want to push you away, but then gets mad when you obey and stay away. Mm, And this has you just totally scratching your head. What connects all these perplexing dots, men, is that your I do for her in some ways will always be, do you? Do you? Really? She knows you're committed to her. She gets that. She knows that you'll be there in a kind of commitment sort of way, but her need is more than mere commitment. There's a cherishing, there's a pursuing top priority love that we're talking about here, and it speaks to the deep need in the feminine soul, or so I've been told. So, so here, let's talk about this, right? Here's ways that we express love and do it better. Men, we love through regular reassurance. This means that when things are rocky, when the relationship's going through some kind of crisis or valley, or perhaps you need space, you reinforce your love. You, you give reassurances of this, and you bathe the relationship this way. So, especially if you're ready to dis- disengage. I love you. Like in the middle of conflict, and you say, the next thing that's going to come out of my mouth is going to blow somebody out of the water. I need to get out of here. So here's what you don't do. You don't slam a door and run down to the car and squeal out of your driving driveway and go get some space. You do not do that. You settle in, and if you must disengage, you say, babe, I love you. And we're going to work this out. Talking right now is not going to help me. I don't think it's going to help you just because of the space I'm in. I need a little time. We're going to work this out. Reassurance. And giving that reassurance is absolutely critical to cherishing her. Then don't take her comments about the relationship at that moment as a report card on your strength. That's absolutely imperative. We respect junkies, man, and we'll take everything as an attack on our competency. And sometimes they're just trying to figure something out. And that is why she will sometimes put out a minefield of emotion or a minefield of indifference. Like that. It's a minefield. And then she sometimes seems totally apathetic to you. And deep in her heart, she wants you to cross that minefield. Why? You say, that's a trick. That's mean. No, understand something, because if you do, it will answer the deep need that she has. He cherishes me, he loves me unconditionally, he finds me so captivating, he will press through and he will find my heart. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but here's a second thing that is critical for communicating love. You love your wife by dropping your defenses, man. Man, we can get defensive, can't we? We get real defensive. So the really terrible thing about being respect junkies is that we go shields up when all our wives are doing is just trying to figure something out. Maybe they're trying to figure out a thing in them. They're just trying to sort through something and they're verbally processing it. Or maybe they're trying to figure out something between the two of you. And if you can't simply engage with the words that are coming out of her mouth and not imply disrespect, then what you're going to do, man, is you're going to turn an intimacy-building opportunity into a conflict. And recently, this just came clear to me. Uh, There's a husband, he was talking to a wife about a particular business deal through a friendship that he wanted to engage in. And her little trustometer started to peg. 
Like, oh, this seemed a little suspicious to her. And she had reason based on a prior experience that maybe this wasn't the best idea. She raised her issues, I thought, in a beautiful way, a respectful way. And you know what ensued? Was a panic-stricken rant full of ultimatums and bad words on the part of the husband. And after a little bit of coaching, I finally just got upset with him. And I said, man, you need to step up by stepping down. That's how I said it. I mean, I just got mad at the guy. Dude, now is the moment to step up. And here's how you step up. Step down. You got to step down. You're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's your, here's your moment to understand her. Here's your moment to empathize with the issue she's having. Here's your moment to humble yourself. Finally, love means persistent pursuit. The husband who hears God's word, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? He knows that love means proactivity, not just sort of a reactive assurance, which is important, but proactive going looking for her because God goes looking for us, right? And this is how God is expressed so beautifully in our wives. I mean, so here we know from the gospel, God sends his son, Messiah, Jesus. And what is Jesus there to do? He's there to cross the minefield of our sins, to meet our great need for forgiveness and healing and power and life. He gave up his life. Another way of saying this, AC3, he gave chase. God gave chase. God pursued us relentlessly. How many of you saw the movie Parent Trap? Anybody in this room? The new one or the old one? Okay, so do you remember the moment? So you have a couple and they broke up. They had twins and they split up the twins. So one goes this way with one girl, the other goes this way with the other girl. <laughs> Not recommended. But uh, anyhow, it makes for a great movie setup, right? So they split up, and then they come back together, and they start to rekindle the romance. And they reflect on how they parted. And here's what the woman says. She says, it ended so fast. So the day you packed, why, why did you do it? Nick, we were young and foolish. We each said foolish things. So, so I packed, and got on, my, on the first 747, and... You didn't come after me. Silence. And the next line is from Nick. He says, I didn't know I was supposed to. I didn't know I was supposed to. You know, this is where men look at the woman in the movie and they say, that's a trick. That's a nasty little test. And they're not getting it. Like, why didn't you just tell him? Then you listen to a woman and her take on this movie, and I read it in a book I was reading on researching this this week. She looked at that scene and she said, no, you're not getting it. If she says, come after me, it wouldn't mean anything. It would be her decision, not his. She'd always be in doubt as to whether he did it because he was captivated by her or had he been guilted into it. That's why. And the man went, oh. Oh, that makes sense. There's a woman in your life, man. And she played dress-up as a little girl. And she spun in that pretty skirt because she wanted to know that she was captivated. And she still wants to know if there's someone who would relentlessly pursue her at all costs. So I want to leave you with a picture. This was a plaque up in the bedroom of friends of ours. They'd been there for years. We knew them, went over to their house, saw this. 
And I was always fascinated at the expression it was. It was a summary of their marriage wisdom. So you see in the picture, of course, two, just look at it for a second. You see there two donkeys. We have other words in our lexicon for that animal. Right? And they're tied together with a rope. And that is the bonds of holy matrimony. The bonds of holy matrimony. You're tied together. And so is that an inescapable rope? Is that a prison? Well, it feels like it. Because you notice in the next panel, they're deeply trying to get something. And they're at cross purposes with one another. And so the tension on the marriage rope is extreme. And they keep trying, pressing, pressing to get the thing that they want. And God's word has revealed to you what that one pile of hay is over the male donkey and what the other pile of hay is over the female donkey. You could put a label on the piles of hay. Respect and love. And it just takes someone to change the dance steps. One person. You could both do it, but it just takes one person to release the pressure on the rope and grant the very thing that your wife, your husband, is desperately needing, the thing that they're wired by God to need, and the thing that God put you in their life to do. So the question is, will we step into this and live it out and be a peculiar marriage culture of love and respect or follow the ways of the TV culture? That's the question. Let's pray. Oh God, may we be a peculiar marriage culture at our church so that in recognizing the difficulties of it, we would call on your power and your wisdom to do it in a different way. And God, that's going to require some selflessness. It's going to require some submission on all of our parts, some surrendering of our own desires. And oh God, may we be ready to serve in the way that the Christ did serve, considering others as better than himself and making himself nothing so that others could be exalted. May we bring this kind of love into our marriages for the sake and the honor and the glory of the Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.